What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these ND Hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. All right, I'm here with Sonal Chokshi. She is one of the biggest experts on building a media business that I know. She's the editor-in-chief at A16Z, also known as Andreessen Horowitz, a VC firm in Silicon Valley. She was formerly a senior editor at Wired Magazine and the head of content and community at Xerox Park. Sona, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cortland. I'm super excited to be here. I'm a huge fan of indie hackers and especially of you. I think we were talking about this. We met a few years ago when I think Mike Solana had brought together like a group of podcasters. That was so much fun. Yeah, it was great. And it was like the perfect size group too. I think it was just six or seven of us, Yeah, which is small enough that you can just be completely frank and honest and not have to worry about anything. And everybody gets a chance to talk. But it's enough people where there will always be something interesting that somebody is saying. So I wish there were more groups of this size that got together and kind of just shared info. I agree. And there was a special energy in the room, which I can't quite pinpoint what it was. Like, it was definitely like the group that was there. First of all, everyone had such a diverse set of podcasts. Like, there was that gentleman who had a podcast that was um, stories from prison. But the other thing that I loved is that there's just not enough trading of tips among experts in the community and to be able to share that was so fun. I just loved it so much. Yeah. And it feels like media today just moves so fast that by the time like people have written books on how to do things and like blog posts and guides, like it's all old school. It's all old news. People are on to like the next big thing. They're on Clubhouse or whatever it is. And so having these sort of smaller, more agile groups is just better for exchanging information faster. And so it's cool that we were able to come together and do that. But then the pandemic happened. <laughs> we, we never met again. But it was great. We should do it more often. And, you know, by the way, to your point about there not being those gatherings, I actually think it's fascinating because there's been such an explosion of people doing podcasting and and written content and tweets and newsletters. And there are like these big conferences for organizing things. Or there's like these tiny, tiny little niche groups of people who are very like-minded and get together, but there's nothing in between. And I do think there needs to be more of that. And the other thing I would say is that I think part of the problem and opportunity here is that there's so much diversity in the ecosystem in terms of types of content, formats, styles, needs, who you're trying to reach, what you're trying to do, that it's there are some principles that underlie all of it. But honestly, for each and every group, it's very custom to what they're doing. And I find this because I get so many calls weekly from people trying to do media outlets or how do I do a podcast or my podcast isn't growing, what's going on? And I just feel like I'm having the same conversations <laughs> over and over and over again. Yeah, it's weird because you have these conversations and you say the same things over and over again to people because they're kind of missing the basics. But then when you get into the nitty gritty, like everybody does need different advice. Like people with podcasts and newsletters should be doing different things. Even two people with podcasts should probably have very different strategies depending on what their goals are. So there really isn't that much one-size-fits-all advice. But annoyingly, that's exactly what I'm going to ask you to do on the show. (laughs) Give one-size-fits-all advice for everybody. (laughs) It's not annoying. So for the record, yes, it is bespoke advice. Absolutely. You can't give great advice without it being personalized to that person's strategy, goals, audience, et cetera. But there still isn't like general principles that people are sharing because I find myself still having a lot of the same conversations over and over again. And I think that's part of the thing is like there are a lot of general things that we can definitely address. So I don't find it annoying at all. 
Yeah, let's let's talk about that because you obviously have a ton of experience across a range of media organizations. You've worked at Wired, you're now the editor-in-chief at a large, successful VC firm. I think traditionally, venture-backed companies have had mm-hmm. a relatively easy time getting press. You know, if they raise a new round, TechCrunch is happy to write about it, whereas indie founders, indie hackers are a little bit hard-pressed to get the word yeah. out about what they're doing. It's, it's either nobody seems to care or it's just they don't have the resources to sort of reach the same audiences as venture-backed companies do. What's your advice for how indie founders can go about cutting through the noise and getting some eyeballs and some readers on the things that they're working on? To your point, like if you are someone who's starting out sort of smaller, you're solving your own problems, which frankly, a lot of the best products do, the question you're asking is really, how do you punch above your weight? And let me start with the basics, which is what is the thing that you're talking about? And so one of the common things I find is that a lot of these sort of indie hackers, indie founders, indie technical builders, they will have a great idea or a great product or an itch they're trying to scratch, but they don't actually have a clear sense of what the differentiator or what the thing they're doing is. And this is like one of the number one failure modes I've seen for how to punch above your weight. What is the thing that you're doing that only you can do and that no one else can do? Like that's actually a pretty good proxy for figuring out your kind of unique content moat. And and this matters because as you pointed out at the very beginning, it's pretty crowded. (laughs) There's a lot of people on podcasts and written pieces and Twitter. There's like a million threads a day with like, thumbs down, like, here's my thread, look, look, point, pointer thumb below emoji, like, read all my tweets <laughs> below, right? That's like a thing that's really exploded on Twitter. And it cracks yeah. me up. It's great. But it's also like not enough. So the first thing I would say is to actually spend time thinking about what is unique to you, like, what's your identity? How do you come up with like your signature two words for for who you are and what your identity is as, as a content outlet as a product, as an identity, essentially. And When I went to Xerox Park, the two words that we sort of came up with through like series of conversations for what's like our uniqueness, what's our differentiator was this phrase entrepreneurial scientists. And those two words together mean something very specific. When I went to Wired, those two words were informed optimism. And that was something that Chris Anderson had shared. Like we were optimistic, pro-future, but it had to be informed by some facts or reality. And then when I came to Andreessen Horowitz, the mandate that I had been given was to, to help build the innovation brand. Those are the two words. And then from there, it everything else flowed. So that's how the whole two-word thing came about. I love it because that makes things just super clear. Like if your uh, two-word constraint is innovation brand, you know exactly what you can and you can't publish. And that runs through everything at A16Z. Like I saw you guys just launched a new media publication called Future. And like I don't have to guess what Future is going to be about. I know that it's going to be about innovation. And this is kind of where you come in because you're responsible for editing pretty much all the content at A16Z. I mean, you are you're infusing this vision of being an innovation brand into literally everything, not just the podcast, but also this new effort future. So it's funny because even though I'm known for doing the podcast, I've been actually editing written pieces at A6NZ from the very beginning. And the podcast came later, in fact. And so I also rebooted our newsletters and started all of those as well. I used to have a weekly newsletter that I ran for us, a monthly newsletter. And then, you know, I hired our managing editor and we expanded into vertical newsletters. So anyway, we've had, we've had a lot of different media properties for a long time. And even before I joined, I would say there were some of them. They just weren't under one cohesive brand. So after joining, I think everyone started noticing like, hey, the podcast is working. Let's try to do more of that. 
like, you know, bringing these outside voices, which is a signature of the podcast. Because when I joined, it was only A6 and Z voices. And I brought in a lot of people from my book network and all these other people at Wired, my former editees, all different combos. And then it was sort of like, well, what's the next thing we do? And so Future, which the team came up with, is actually an extension of what we've already been doing with our podcast for the past seven years, which is bringing outside voices to talk about ideas onto our platform. And the reason it has its own separate site is because we don't want it to be just about us. But of course, it also is connected into our worldview. I love this idea of bringing in outside voices and telling yeah. sort of like stories in the first person, like having these outside voices actually yep. provide the content and the advice and the strategy and the viewpoints and the opinions. It's like it's it's good in so many ways. Number one, it's it's authentic. Like you're actually getting to hear from the people who are doing the innovation what they're up to. Number two. I don't want to say that it's easier because it's hard, right? It's, it's like lots of different things that are difficult about it. But at the same time, like one group of people can only have so many ideas. Like for Indie Hackers, if I tried to sit down on the podcast and just like monologue, you know, 100 episodes in a row, like I would be repeating myself by episode number two. Oh, totally. Uh, but the fact that I can bring on like guests like you or the fact that I've done the same thing on the website means that there's like sort of endless diversity of ideas and experiences and stories. And it's the same thing at A16Z. And it's something I don't see a lot of founders doing. The vast majority of indie hackers who start, you know, sort of a media arm for their business, whether it's just them tweeting or them starting a podcast or a newsletter, try to take on this burden of producing all of the content and the ideas themselves, which is just so hard to do. Oh, my God. I have so many thoughts on that. Well, first of all, when you say you think it's, it can be hard, tell me why you think it can be hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's very gratifying, but I'm curious for, you know, you run Indie Hackers. Right. I'm curious for your perspective on that too. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, if you're going to basically bring in outside voices, you now have an entire job, which is to sort of find and curate the voices that you want to bring on. Because not yeah. every single person is like ideal for you to work with. And so like, that's just a lot. Like you have to like, work with other people's schedules. You have to send a lot of outreach emails. You have to sort of pitch why people should come and contribute to what you're doing rather than promoting themselves or you know writing their ideas on their own platforms, yep. which is like something that I think takes a while to do. Like with Indie Hackers, when I first started it about five years ago, I didn't have the clout or the brand or the reputation to get a lot of people on. And so like, I think I sent like 150 emails asking indie hackers to come on the website and share their stories. And like eight people said yes. Oh man, <laughs> you know, They're like, so who, who are you? And why yeah. would I share my story and my revenue numbers with your audience? Like, you know, I don't even know what you are, right? Whereas nowadays it's much easier. And so I think that part's hard. And then there's also, you know, like the other sort of idiosyncrasies of like what happens if somebody comes on and you discover like they're actually not the right person. Right. I end up not publishing a lot of podcast episodes Same. or yeah. articles or and that, that doesn't feel good. You know, if you don't publish your own thing, you're letting yourself down. But if somebody else came and worked with you or wrote something or did an interview and you don't publish their thing, like that's emotionally tough to deal with. It is. I think it's really important to underscore what you said, that it's actually not just the logistics of what you described of like the booking and bringing people on and everything that it takes. It's not just the logistics that you mentioned curation. Curation is hard to do well, like finding the right experts at the right time and the right topics. So that itself is hard. And, you know, I'll also say like, you know, even though A6 and Z had a strong brand when I joined, it didn't actually have a strong editorial brand. And I had to sell and pitch people on the idea of coming on the A6 and Z podcast. They didn't even know what A6 and Z was. A lot of the East Coast like publisher types that I would try to pitch from my wired network to come on and bring their authors on, like I had to really bank on a lot of relationships to get people to come. But to your point, you're right. It takes a lot of people to get good content because you never know what you're going to get. And it takes a lot of work 
But to answer your question about what founders can do if they're thinking about their own media outlet, whether it's a one-person brand or you know, their company, the first thing that I would say, and this is the first question I ask people, is whether they need a editor or a writer. And the first thing I'll do is I'll have them, I'll walk them through like sort of an asset exercise, like an inventory of assets, like, okay, what are all the assets that you have in-house? So let's say you have a community, like you're an open source founder, and you have like a really active community and a lot of like super community members who are willing to like produce content or, or be on things. Great. Well, that's one of your assets. Let's say you have a lot of smart people inside who are building things and who want to articulate and share their ideas. Those are assets. Let's say you produce data reports and you have like, or you have a lot of data exhaust and things that are not just exhaust, but they're actually useful and you might want to turn them into something interesting. Those are assets. And the reason I ask people to sort of walk me through their assets and their inventory, what they have in house is that from there, you can then decide whether you need to hire an editor, which is someone who can edit many things or a writer who, you know, they can have like a consistent point of view and a voice, but they're going to be rate limited to your point. Like you asked me, you know, why don't more people do this? And I think it's because they only know writing and writing is great, but that's like N equals one. You're rate limited by the time of how many things you can do. Whereas an editor is like N times a hundred. You have like a hundred contributors and you can edit all of them by having balls in the air and then you can land them. And so that's the difference between an editor and a writer. And so that's one of the first things I'll do when I walk people through the exercise of how to think about like their media operation. Editing sounds so, <laughs> so much better, especially if you're like strapped for time because you're an early stage founder trying to build your product, et cetera. You're just so much more efficient. Like in the early days of Indie Hackers, I was doing like five, six interviews a week in addition to building Indie, hack Indie Hackers. There's no wow. way I could have done that if my entire job was writing from scratch. It would have been impossible. Exactly. But then you pointed out earlier, and this is the dark side of editing, is it takes a lot of work and a lot of balls in the air to have like 100 things to have 10 good things land. And so there's a lot of work you have to do to readjust your assumptions when you're doing more editing than writing. Because when you're working with people who are not naturally writers, but who have great ideas, a lot of the work, as you know, more than anybody, because you do this on your show, it's about drawing out like the best parts, trying to figure out like what to focus on, what to downplay, what to uh, have them back up. And there's so much work that goes into editing. It's not just like, you know, making copy pretty, which is like a big misconception about what editing is. Yeah. And I love this process that you, you went through about sort of identifying your assets, because not only can that help you identify, do I need a writer? Do I need an editor? But it can also help you identify like, what is it that you uniquely can offer to the world? Exactly. You know, if you just sit down and decide, I want to write and put out content like vaguely. Okay. Well, like that, like who cares? Right? A lot of people are putting out content. Like why does your content matter? Uh, it has to be unique, which is something that you've preached about a lot. Oh, yeah. uh, and it's hard, I think, especially for early stage founders to figure out what they have that's unique. So if you kind of do this inventory and you say, okay, well, I've got this application, you know, I have this data, I talk to these people, I, you know, have developed this expertise, it's easier for you to sort of identify, okay, here's what I can actually produce. Here's what I have to work with that other people don't. And maybe it's a combination of resources that you have that other people don't. That's exactly, half the time it is a combination. In fact, I often describe that the best way to think about your assets is not only in isolation, but how you can kind of recombine them in interesting ways to make it even more fresh because packaging plays a big role and I can go into that more later. But to, to go even further, I would say, Cortland, something to think about and your audience should think about is I find a lot of technical founders over rotate in the opposite direction, which is that they almost wear it as a badge of honor 
that, oh, I'm just going to do it because that's what I do. That's how I'm successful. I'm a hacker. I just like build and I do, I build in public and I just do it. And for the record, I'm a huge fan of that. I definitely believe that's great. But the big thing that a lot of people have missed is that the world has shifted under their feet. And if they're paying attention, there are more people on Twitter than ever. There are more people on doing newsletters. There are more people doing podcasts than ever. And sure, that would have worked great five years ago. You know, I'll often hear founders tell me a lot of technical founders in particular say, I just want a conversation that me and my friends can enjoy when they're starting a podcast. That's great. That's actually really good to do. That's a good way to find your differentiator. But you know what? Almost all these people after about three months, it's almost like the three month rule hit kind of like an invisible asymptote where they just level off and they don't grow any further. And then they get stuck. And then they come to me and they ask me, like, how do I reboot my show or how do I do this? <laughs> and I'm just kind of like, it's because you didn't start off having a clear identity or concept or differentiator for what you're putting out into the world. Right. Oh, and by the way, it also solves a lot of time problems because when you're strapped for time and resources, like when you describe how in the early days of indie hackers, you know, you would have to have like 135 emails and maybe eight would respond. And you had a lot of episodes that you couldn't run early on. I, I'm entirely sure that as you've gotten better at this, you've probably gotten much better at the hit rate on which episodes run, right? Totally, yeah. Why do you think that is, by the way? Just experience, right? Because sort of, okay, well, now I curate better who's going to come on the show because I know basically which episodes are going to come out well or not. I have better planning, better questions. Same. And it's the same thing. We got better as we did more programming up front. And what I often tell people is that more of the episode, or in fact, for any good content, most of the programming and work, and you know this firsthand, you just said it, it's in the upfront work you do. It's actually less in the conversation itself. It's more in the upfront and the after work, like the production and post-production and editing and what happens in between is important, but actually less, the least important for getting a successful hit rate, actually. So experience helps you with that. But the, for founder, this matters because time you waste on a miss is time wasted on something else. And so you have greater costs when you don't get that right. And so the more founders actually ask themselves, what is the goal? And it sounds so obvious. I feel like that cheesy person who's like, what's your goal? But the reality is like, you have to know that. And it's okay if your goal is to figure it out. Have a hypothesis at least. Don't just be like, oh, I'm just gonna start a show and hang out with my friends and, and that's interesting to me. So it'll be interesting to everyone. And look, again, I, I, I value the indiness of that and the hackeriness of that. But you're not actually hacking your way into something if you don't have a working hypothesis of what's working or right. what you're trying to do, and then a way to kind of close a feedback loop for is it even working and how do we grow it further? So let's apply this to what you were doing at, at A16Z because I agree wholeheartedly. And I think even if it's like the most obvious advice, people sometimes need to hear the most obvious advice because yes. it's really <laughs> easy to take it for granted yeah. and not to not have a goal, to not have a hypothesis, to not know what it is you're trying to achieve. At A16Z, you have this new sort of media publication called Future, future.com. Um, it's awesome. It's got a ton of articles, a ton of content, and they're very high quality pieces. Oh, thank what's you. your, so good to hear that. What's your goal? Like, what's like, how did, what are you trying to accomplish by launching this? Cause like, you don't have to have Future. You could just go on with your podcasts and your newsletters and the blog that you already have. Like, why create a new media arm of A16Z? So the goal of future is to help make sense of the future and to have like one go-to place for being able to do that. Now, to be clear, there are plenty of places, wonderful places in the ecosystem out there for people to find things out. There's incredible Substack newsletters. I read so many. There's media outlets that do a great job with like reported storytelling or investigative journalism. There's a lot of people blogging and writing about company building. There's how-to. There's no shortage of good content out there. 
that there isn't like one go-to place to kind of make sense of it all. Like, okay, if I want to understand like this new Trek trend I hear about, well, people come to us to say like, hey, I want to hear this podcast on GPT-3 they just did because someone just announced this thing. Everyone's excited about it. I see all these other like scary articles about it. Like, what is it? What's hype? What's real? Where are we on the long arc of innovation? And how can I understand it? And so we really aim to be the go-to place to, to understand that. And a lot of that involves, as we were talking about earlier, a lot of curation for like, what are the different voices and expertise out there? A lot of thinking about the tech trends and topics that need to be covered. And then the approach you take, like, is it a first person op-ed? Is it a podcast? Would it be better served by uh, a listicle or, you know, whatever things there are. And then we have two pillars of content. There's tech trends, like, you know, whether it's quantum computing or infrastructure or crypto or gaming or company building. Because the thing that you know from Indie Hackers is... There's a lot of advice out there for company building for a lot of established companies that have kind of a a known managerial playbook for building things. But a lot of the people that we talk to are building things in a very uncertain environment under conditions of high uncertainty. And so the art of what that kind of company building is very different. Like, what do you do when you have your series A check and actually want to build a company to scale? There's not a lot of expertise out there. People are trying to still hack like the HBS stuff, Harvard Business School stuff and trying to make sense of that, but it's actually not really native to startups. And so that's essentially what we're building. And then what are your like internal goals for something like this? Because like you're putting out this content and that's how it can help readers and you know, they can essentially understand the future, which is awesome. But like as a VC firm or as an editor in chief at a VC firm, like what do you hope to accomplish for yourselves? Like, do you want to make this into like some sort of huge media company like the New York Times or something? Are you hoping to generate deal flow and increase the sort of brand and reputation of A16Z? Like why even go through the effort of doing something like this? Yeah, it's funny. The joke that people have always made about us that we're a media outlet that monetizes through VC, which I kind of love. And now it's actually kind of true in many ways. You know, there's always like business goals at play, but we're very discerning. Like the whole reason the podcast is so popular is people know when they're being sold something. And if they don't want to like be bullshitted, they're not going to listen. And of course, there's going to be like, you know, goals for the business. But the reality is like, we don't have a shortage of deal flow. And certainly it can maybe help founders to know that they can publish on future and have a place that they can share their views that there isn't out there. The goal is a much deeper underlying job to be done. The way I think about it is if you think about the early days of Wired, and I don't know how many of your listeners are even old enough to remember the early Wired or or you even get the magazine in their inbox, but their or their mailbox. But there was this sort of excitement that people would have when it would come to their doors because It was this idea, even if you don't agree with everything in there, which you shouldn't, I mean, there's all these different worldviews in there, but there was this idea that there was one place you could go to understand technology. And right now, because tech has become so powerful in so many ways, I think a lot of media is focusing on sort of calling quote, truth to power versus actually like the trends and the company building. So there is nothing out there that actually does this. So to me, the ambition is to fill that need in a big, big, big way. It doesn't exist. And I believe the reason the podcast took off is that there is a large, large silent majority that craves nuance and depth. And I want us to serve that Mm. group. Yeah, I have strong thoughts about this because like, I think most <laughs> intelligent people want to hear both sides of various yeah. arguments. They want to understand what's going on under the hood. And I think certain channels, as you're pointing out, aren't very good at that. Like, you don't 
go on Twitter to have nuanced discussions about controversial right. topics because, like, essentially, whichever side in that argument has the most people who are the angriest is going to win because that's just kind of how Twitter works. But yeah. on, like, a podcast or in a newsletter or in something where, like, I guess maybe the, the sort of common denominator is the comments aren't that public. <laughs> you know, everybody kind of reads on their own and there isn't this, like, sort of common public ground for every reader to kind of react and see how everybody else is reacting. You can kind of express these more nuanced opinions. And so on Future, for example, when I look at like the content that A16Z is putting out, you have a lot of stuff that I would consider techno-optimism. You know, yeah. obviously, Mark Andreessen is like very adamant about the future. And to even be a VC firm, like you have to be sort of optimistic about the future. I wonder how, how you fall, though, like very personally, like what are your thoughts on basically <laughs> techno-optimism? How do you feel? Because as, a, as an editor and uh, sort of a content creator, like, you're not necessarily creating all the content yourself. You're more so like interviewing and talking to other people, but like mm -hmm. someone will like, what are, what are your opinions? You know, what do you think about the future and like the kind of content that you're putting out at future? Oh my God. I love that you're asking this question because it gets at the heart of one of these things that often is a false religious dogma and debate that plays out, which is this idea that optimism has to be positive and that criticism has to be negative. <laughs> and it's like a false conflation. I think people are actually conflating very different things. And so I love what you're saying because I, yes, like, first of all, for future, we are unapologetically pro-technology, pro-future. That's clear. It's in the name, which for the record, I didn't come up with, the team did, but that is like a defining worldview. I am also, to answer your question, Cortland, personally, yes, I am very pro-future and progress and change because I'm the daughter of immigrants. I would visit India growing up a lot, saw firsthand you know, how technology and markets and things could change things. That doesn't mean it's all good or bad. Like I'm not putting a moral judgment on it one way or the other. It's more about, I saw the benefits in many ways and certainly a lot of the backlash and fallouts too. But there's no doubt in my mind that even the solutions will involve technology in some form. And when I think of like the story of human evolution, it's all about technology, whether it's a pencil in your hand, you know, cave paintings or voice, like you and I are talking right now on a podcast, but people have been talking around fires for centuries. So that is a technology. Fire is a technology. So in that sense, I'm incredibly positive about the power of technology. Now, we as a position will not do takedowns. Like there's plenty of other people in the ecosystem that can do that. We're concentrating on a builder focus point of view. And to be clear, it doesn't mean it has to be cheerleading because again, nobody's going to read something that's a puff piece or cheerleading. When I was at Wired, Chris Anderson used to have like a no Kickstarters rule because the idea was a Kickstarter is great, but we don't know it's real yet. It hasn't even been built. And so one of the op-eds I edited at Wired was from Astro Teller at Google X. And I'm, I don't really know, you know my opinion on Google X itself, but he did a piece for me about how it's easier to think big. So like the framework he used was if you have a big problem, like if you identify a big problem and then you also identify a big solution, the third part of that formula is to have some concrete evidence, some breakthrough in science or technology or engineering that could actually make that solution possible within the next decade or so. And that was sort of the formula he used for defining what was a moonshot, like you can actually reach the moon. And so similarly, that's exactly the kind of principles when we say informed optimism, that's the same kind of principle. Like it's something that could be real if we brought enough human ingenuity to it, but there has to be some proof, for example, semiconductor manufacturing in the case of Moore's law to make that trajectory possible. So that's how I would think about grounding it in reality. So it's not just like freewheeling futurism. Well, I think it's interesting in that, like the fact that we've gotten to a place where 
saying positive things about startups or technology is in and of itself controversial kind of helps from a media standpoint, right? Because like, for example, if you want to take a point of view, because people tend to spread things that are opinionated and that either agree or disagree with them, you can basically write a piece like what, what Mark Andreessen wrote last year, like it's time to build, or the kinds of things you write at A16Z in general, which are like sort of techno-optimistic, and people will share them because they'll have very strong opinions about them. This is something I think about at Indie Hackers, where it's like, by default, Indie Hackers is very sort of pro-innovation, and yet I don't really take that strong of, like, of a public stand about it very specifically. Like I'll say things like, like I'll share stories about entrepreneurs who are succeeding, but I won't say that like, this is a good thing for the world, <laughs> you know, as explicitly as you guys do. And I, I wonder how much that helps you sort of get the message out and how other people who are trying to basically spread their, their message or even just do like, you know, sort of generic content marketing could benefit by having a stronger point of view that aligns with something that's kind of controversial that people are opinionated about. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm very similar to you, Cortland. Like I, I won't go on public and say things. And the only reason is because, I mean, I'll say things like share, you know, stories of things and I'll try to do more show versus tell. But for me, it's because there's a lot of ranting and commentary on Twitter. And it's not that I don't enjoy that. Like I like reading it, but I am at heart a builder. I think you are too, which is probably why we don't want to wade into a lot of that because yeah. it's actually a distraction from the building. And first is that I actually don't think it's just about being positive or negative. And, and I'm not a big fan of the opinions where people only follow like-minded things. Like we're not successful if only people who agree with us or people who hate us share our stuff. I want to reach that silent majority in the middle that I mentioned again, like the people that are figuring things out. So I always look for what I call crossover people. So if in any debate or discussion, do you quote convert the crossovers. So for instance, if someone is not understanding quantum computing, they find it very scary. Oh my God, quantum computing means that all of our algorithms are going to die and we're not going to be able to have any prior information anymore. And then after they read something really thoughtful and informed, do they actually understand the thing and then say, oh, this is interesting. Well, let me not think about all the different ways I might attract this problem in a different way. That is what I call a win. And for me, those kinds of crossover people who are in the middle, who are trying to understand technology are the most powerful target audience in the world. And that is a group that I believe we need to all serve as a community, including your listeners, because you will always win if you're selling to your own, that's great. But if you want to go beyond the core, you have to expand into that. And by the way, there's a way to do this without quote, dumbing things down. Because the other debate that I hear, which drives me insane, is when technical founders will, and I've heard this for years. I heard this at Park. I heard this at Wired. I've heard this here. They'll say to me like, oh, I don't wanna dumb it down. And it's like, you know what? You don't have to dumb anything down. The art of it is in the execution. Like, can you quickly define the term that you're talking about? Because I guarantee you that even your insiders probably don't define the term the same way that you think they do. And so there's a lot of things you can do to bring people along is what I would add to that. And then finally, the other thing I would say is that a real signature of future, it's not so much that it's like you have to be like, you know, pro something. It's that you have to argue for something. And I don't just want people who are commentariat or analyzing, but who are builders. So they're not just reacting, but they're actually proactively proposing a point of view. That's what we're looking for. And I think there needs to be more of that because right now, a lot of people are just derivatively analyzing each other's takes, mm -hmm. but it's not really advancing the narrative. What do you think about the, the sort of idea of, of filter bubbles though, where people kind of on their own pick the voices they want to listen to, like the people who like read 
content from A16Z or the people who listen to indie hackers, for example, are people who already sort of agree with what it is that we're pushing, putting out there. Um, in order to reach these people who are in the middle, who are kind of on the fence, who can be persuaded, you need it to sort of spread beyond your sort of default audience. Right? How, do you, how do you create content that people who already trust you will share with those who don't necessarily trust or believe what you typically put out? Oh, God, I love that question, too. And that is all about quality, hands down. Because if something is good and well done and defensible, even if you disagree with it or it just opens your eyes a little bit or it makes you think differently, it makes you feel smarter, people will share that. And yes, you're absolutely right that there is a phenomenon playing out. And that's the filter, a couple of things on the filter bubble thing. First of all, I think there's been a lot of research that's shown that if you think about time relativistically, like right now versus say, you know, 200 years ago or even 20, 30 years ago, we were actually exposed to more ideas outside our filter bubbles than ever before. It's actually unprecedented to have this many humans online, which is why I think we experience a lot of friction. Like we haven't experienced this in our human society at any point. I don't think we've been ready for that. So we're kind of learning and that's part of it. Second of all, yes, you're right that there's a lot of sorting and self-sorting that happens. I don't know. I think there's like a phrase. What is it? Tybo sorting or Tebow sorting? I forgot what it's called, where people sort of self-select into these groups and, and communities. That certainly happens too. And that's actually kind of one of the beauty, beautiful things about the internet is that you no longer are tied to your local neighborhood to find your community. Like you can find your community, your niche interests, but it's not broken across only demographic variables like you know, geography, where you live, gender, age, it's often broken across a combination of interests. It's more of an interest graph. Like I'm interested in, I'm not interested in these things, but let's say I'm interested in knitting and quantum computing and art. Well, guess what? I want to find a like-minded community of people who also have those exact three interests. That's not actually homogenizing because that's actually creating a group of people with like-minded interests who are actually quite diverse. And so that's one thing I would just say about the filter bubbles point. And then the last thing I would say is that a lot of what you're describing is about the algorithmic nature of content in terms of what's being surfaced, like how discovery is happening, how recommendations work. And for me, and I think this is one of the reasons that you know we're big believers in Substack, is a lot of companies and content and creators are actually able to directly share their content in other mediums that don't have those problems. And so that's one of the values of all the things. I mean, podcasting is a form of that, don't you think? Yeah. Well, I think you're exactly right. Like we are exposed to many more ideas than we ever were. Like if you were consuming media like 50, 60 years ago, like how many big media companies were there? Like four or five that were all sort of similar. And now there's just like millions of different little niches you can consume content for, which allows you to sort of pick out and find the people who are almost exactly like you. But in order to do that, you sort of have to filter through lots of different other content that you normally wouldn't be exposed to. So I think it's it's not all gloom and doom, as people say. But then there are challenges for building a sort of media company at scale. Like if everybody can niche down into like the one specific newsletter that they really like or the one specific group that they really like, then how do you build a gigantic media company that can appeal to lots and lots of people? You know, how does something like Future reach scale where millions of people can read it. Even with the Indie Hackers podcast, like when I started doing this in 2017, there weren't that many people interviewing founders and podcast form about their journeys, especially not like indie founders. Right. Whereas today there's like a hundred podcasts and totally. you know, depending on like what your style is and what kind of interviewer you like, you can choose the exact thing that you want, which makes it harder for me to make this show bigger and more influential. 
Right. No, there's a lot of interesting points in what you said. So yes, I agree that there's an end of big in many ways. There are a lot of new breakout hits. Like if you look at the leaderboard on Substack and a lot of these really big, you know, they're like one person media brands that are bigger than most other media brands in some ways. So that's kind of an interesting phenomenon. And certainly in podcasting, there's been a lot of discussion about how there's an end of big, like there hasn't been a big breakout hit since Serial. I think the New York Times Daily is like one of the biggest like breakout shows in terms of audience and listenership. But there's a very, very, very long tail of podcasters, as you know. And that's a good thing in many ways, because you're right, there's like a niche and, and the niches find each other. And that's a powerful thing. I don't know the answer of how everyone's going to reach scale in that sense. And I know for future, the way I think about it is that you can start with the core and then expand into these sort of adjacent niches and sort of aggregate them in in a way to create that larger audience. And the thing is that I think what's happening is this other phenomenon, which is not only about content, but it's about cult building, which is there's a lot of people on Twitter and social and their own like one person media brands essentially creating cults. And I think a lot of those are not just subscribers and listeners and audience, but they're followers. And a lot of the people I see who are doing that right now are focused on viral hits or like trying to just get popular. They're not actually thinking about a body of work, like a portfolio of work. And I think a lot of companies and and startups and individuals and even one person media brands should be thinking more strategically about a portfolio and body of work. Well, that's so interesting because... Like there are the, there's this sort of polarity between like, okay, like viral hits that are sort of trending and that are riding a wave. And these things are pretty good because they can spread far and wide and capture a lot of people who ordinarily wouldn't have been exposed to your ideas. Then like there is like this alternative sort of like evergreen backlog of content you can produce that people will go back and read for years to come. Like first round capital is really good at this. They put together like several websites where like I can go and search for like great startup advice from years ago. That's just evergreen. And that's also like a valid way, I think, to reach people if you go through the right channels. For example, like search engine optimization being found on Google is huge. There's perhaps almost no bigger way to reach people than that. And so when you're putting together something like Future, like as an outsider looking in, like my, my knee-jerk reaction is like, this is vi- these, these are viral hits. These are things that will cause an uproar when they're written and they're very timely. But like two years from now, you know, they might not be as relevant. Or there might be something that people reference, but that people aren't sharing to such a large degree. And the downside to that is like, how do you build over time, right? How do you grow an audience over time? Will people get basically bored if it's the same thing? Or will people, you know, keep coming back if you don't continue producing new viral hits? Yeah, well, this is an essential question of any media operation. And I don't know how you do your editorial calendar, Cortland, but I think about everything in terms of stock and flow. I think, was it Robin Sloan or someone coined this? is an, an economics term, but he coined it in the context of content. But I think of stock and flow. So like the flow is the stuff that you run for volume and cadence and to kind of build an audience. To be clear, you should not be running a bunch of junk. So people ask me like number one advice by editorial strategy. And my, oh, my advice is sometimes it's more about what you don't run and what you kill than what you do run. And so I think about it in terms of stock and flow. And then the stock is sort of the big ideas that you might put out there. So they're not just things that are timely. And when you're talking about stuff that might get outdated, some of our best content is very Lindy. Like it keeps coming up over and over and over again. It's evergreen. And that is really critical for creating a media outlet. You have to have both. I'm reading a quote from Robin Sloan. And he says, flow is the feed. It's the posts and the tweets. It's the stream of daily and sub-daily updates that remind people that you exist. 
And stock is the durable stuff. It's the content you produce that's as interesting in two months or two years as it is today. It's what people discover via search. It's what spreads slowly but surely, building fans over time. And so there are these pieces that have come out of A16Z and other media properties that are like definitely stuck. Like Mark Andreessen writing It's Time to Build, or his idea of sort of product market fit that he wrote about over a decade ago, or writing about software eats the world. Like these are things people talk about forever. Legion writing about the passion economy and the creator economy, the idea of like 100 true fans. Like there are these ideas that just last forever that are certainly stuck. Yes, except I will say it's interesting because in the examples you cited, two of them, Mark's post on It's Time to Build and Lee's post on the passion economy, which also grew from you know the conversations with the consumer team here, both of those are also very much in the zeitgeist and about the timing that they ran in. And so Lindy posts, like Evergreen posts, will do really well regardless of the time they're in. Like the product market fit post is a great example of that because that is an evergreen essential idea that keeps coming back over and over and over again. Ben's example on this front is his famous like good product manager, bad product manager post. Whereas it's time to build as viral as that essay was. And oh my God, it was really viral. It also is of the time. And in that zeitgeist of the pandemic and his frustration, which he writes about in that piece that are you kidding me? Like, we don't have enough surgical masks, eye shields, and medical gowns. As I write this, New York City has put out a desperate call for rain ponchos to be used as medical gowns. <laughs> rain ponchos in 2020 in America. Those yeah. are all his exclamation points. But that was very much a call to arms and in that zeitgeist. Like, it was very motivated by the time of the pandemic. The other variable in what you just discussed is it's not just the evergreenness or not and the stock versus flowness of it or not, it's also the timing and the zeitgeist. And timing plays a really critical role in content and viral hits as well. So what are your thoughts on like contributing to both of these categories? Because I think there's probably different strategies for producing a viral sort of flow hit, let's call it, versus an evergreen stock hit. And like no one's good enough to reliably sit down and just say, I want a viral hit today, just get it whenever they want to. But at the end of the day, like if you're trying to produce a publication that like is going to be successful, in these two areas, you probably have some principles, some thoughts about what will make something viral and what will make something oh, yeah. stock. And also, since you're working with like outside writers and contributors, so it's like you don't even have full control over this. I know. This is what makes it so hard and also fun. Yeah. And I actually have to say, it's going to sound so braggy, but I don't mean it to sound braggy. Um, one of the things I pride myself on as an editor from both my work at Park to Wired to here is sort of like a track record of viral hits. And there are certain variables that go into all of them and timing is a big part of that. But it actually goes back to where we started this conversation, which is differentiation. And so one of the things that I'll tell people is, um, cause a lot of times I think people play this content game that they're trying to compete for who has the first take. And this is the exact problem that a lot of media outlets have when they were covering news. It became extremely commoditized very fast. And so the real strategy here is to figure out what your unique mode is. So when I was at, you know, when I first started at A6 and Z, one of the partners came to me and was like, oh my God, so-and-so wrote that post I wanted to write, so and all, like we should have gotten it out last week. And I'm like, dude, if someone else wrote the post you could write, you're writing the wrong thing. And so you shouldn't be writing that post. You have to write something that only you can do. Like when Connie and I wrote the WeChat piece, that was something that only she could do in a unique way from her vantage point that nobody else could do. And so it's okay that we spent a couple of months working on that because nobody else could beat us to that game. And so when you're playing the commodified game, it's a race to the bottom. It's diminishing returns. It's all those phrases. You're always playing the wrong game. 
So does this compete with the idea that cause when I look at like pieces that go viral, they're often part of a bigger conversation that is very popular, you know, like during election season, <laughs> the viral hits are about the election. And so in some ways, they're not that unique because they're about a topic that everybody's discussing. But within that constraint, they have to be unique. Yeah. And to be clear, I think there are cases where sometimes you're right, like in the zeitgeist, like the creator economy is a great example. Like right now, everybody is talking about the creator economy as it applies to crypto and the intersection there. And I feel like every day on Twitter, I see 20 of the exact same piece in different forms from different people. Now that's exciting to me because that shows a lot of energy and excitement. It's also quite honestly, a little boring to me because everybody's saying the same thing. And so to me, that's three things. One is there's a timing factor. And yes, you're right. Like in a time when there's a hot topic or something in the zeitgeist, everyone will sort of be circling around the same ideas. And when you're playing that game, you have to be first to the conversation. The other way to play this game is to go later in the conversation. And my former colleague at Wired, Mark McCluskey, he was a editor in chief of the Sports Illustrated online after this. And he wrote a book on sports performance. He coined this thing, which I call the McCluskey curve, which is the timing of this. So if you go first, you wanna either be first in the cycle or you wanna go later and add a very differentiated, deeper, in-depth take that nobody else has where you're adding value to the conversation. But if you go anywhere in the middle, you're just in the noise. And frankly, I think a lot of people are doing that. And look, I'll tell them it's a great strategy because you get a lot of followers, you get a lot of attention in the moment, but I guarantee you, and I would put good money on this. Like I would take a bet on this with anybody who wants to bet me on this. Those people are gonna ask them to out. They're not gonna grow past a certain point because they're not thinking about it in terms of a body of work. They're not thinking about their moat, their competitive differentiation and where they're adding value and they're not playing a long game. And so you had to play the trade-offs there to some extent. That makes a ton of sense. And I've noticed this with indie hackers too. Like if like some media mm -hmm. event happens and we push out like, you know, quote unquote news to our audience about it, because it's very valuable to inform people like, hey, this just happened and you should take advantage of it. We, we could write something that's extremely sparse and it's it mostly just the headline, like, hey, this happened, and it'll generate a ton of discussion, a ton of discussion if it's super new. But after that, like the, the McCluskey curve kicks in, and it's much more about providing a ton of detail, a ton of analysis, a ton of educating people how to think about certain things or providing a point of view that is not necessarily required up front, but definitely is required to stand out from the noise later on. Well, the media has a phrase for this too, which is like first day story, second day take, third day story. But I'm actually talking about something even bigger. And in your case, you building indie hackers as a brand, there's also besides the individual pieces and how they do and don't do and the timing that we just talked about that you just shared, there's also kind of a meta level to this, which is the phasing of the brand. So what you did a few years ago in the early days of indie hackers is very different than what you do today because you had a different phase. And that's also important to consider when you're trying to build your content operation. Is that true for you as a VC firm? I mean, like you've been there for seven years. Is A16Z at a different phase than it was when you joined? In many ways, absolutely, because we're doing, you know, the separate media site future. And we're really doubling down on what we've been doing for years, but now doing it in a much bigger, more open to other voices way. But in a lot of ways, no, it's not that different because it's very tied to the core of who we are. Where it is different though, and this kind of ties to the whole idea of the evolution of a brand is from a phasing perspective. If you think about, you know, like say 10 years ago, this is before I even joined, their job and Margaret's job in this case, who's the head of marketing at A6 and Z, was to just put the firm's name on the map. 
and you know you had things like the P Marka blog and Ben's book, and that sort of established their identities. But then the next phase, when they brought on more partners, that doesn't work because you can't rely on just like the charismatic two co-founders to run like create create something at scale. And so then you have to think about other things. That's the phase that I joined, and that was like you know eight years ago. And then after that, as you know, we started promoting partners that like Connie. Like one of the reasons she got promoted was that WeChat post we worked on because she has so much expertise, but no one knew. And now, you know, people know that she's like this go-to person for that kind of expertise. But then we kind of went into different verticals, like, you know, FinTech and crypto and consumer and different domain areas. And that's another example of a next phase. And so similarly then within that, each of those verticals. So for instance, with bio, we have a bio fund, you know, the early days of the phasing of that, it was about creating an identity that this entity exists and that we have investments in bio and software and engineering based technologies for bio, not just classic biotech. And that was the first phase. And that involved putting out a lot of content. So to bring this all full circle in order to get noticed, to to punch above your weight, to to pay attention. I worked with Vijay along with one of my other colleagues on an op-ed for the New York Times on why we shouldn't fear the black box of AI. And that was really important because we, we syndicated that in order to get even more audience. And that led to other great effects. But then in the next phase, it became more about, well, how do we really find our core audience and grow the audience even more? And then we don't do as much content, but then we do more quality over quantity. So when you guys launched Future, there was a lot of, I guess, media attention about it. A16Z, the current phase it's in, is very well known. It's a force to be reckoned with. And if you guys make moves, people essentially take notice and write about it. And when you launched Future, uh, I'm sure you read his post, Matt, Matt Iglesias, uh, I love his substack, Slow Boring. He wrote sort of a critique and a response of the fact that you launched Future. And he has a very incisive point. And he says, if I have a critique of Future, it's that in a very non-VC way, they're not thinking big enough. The purpose of the publication is to foster a tech-positive media niche, but that purpose is much too obvious. And if you disagree with their tech-positivity worldview, you'll immediately find it off-putting. And if you sympathize, then you'll find yourself on guard, sort of to make sure you're not a dupe. So you'll be kind of defensive about it. And he says, this is not the way. What they ought to be doing is thinking like Rupert Murdoch, especially in his his newspaper guys. And I guess this is sort of his sort of prescription for how do you reach scale? How do you reach people who don't already agree with you and appeal to the mainstream in this in this world where everybody is sort of niched down and they're only reading the exact things that they want to read? What are, what are your thoughts on that? You know, what is the path forward for future to become this huge ambitious thing? And do you think that he's right in saying that it's not thinking big enough? I, I don't disagree with a lot of what he said, actually. And it's funny because the way I think about this is this is all about the phasing. Like the initial phase is about hitting the core and, and really establishing this range of perspectives. Like we didn't have one style of op-ed in both domain and authorship and style. They were very different and making sure that we have the credibility showing the depth because yes, part of it is that there's a lot of attention on what we're building, but the goal is always to make sense of the future. And so starting with this initial launch set was one way to start there. Over time, I absolutely agree. We're going to have to move into not just sort of this core, but into more of the adjacent audiences. I mentioned kind of the aggregating of things. What you're saying, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, and, and in quoting Maddie, is the idea that you have to sort of have this like culty way of, of writing. And I think that's actually true for a lot of making big pieces. The fundamental question for me is whether really, really good nuanced in-depth things can also survive and actually grow successfully in that world. 
because of that silent majority. The question is how that's going to play out. And I think that time will tell. So we'll have to see how that grows. But to be clear, this is phase one. You know, as we launched the MVP, we're resuming publishing in September. The next phase will definitely grow. And in future phases, you know, I'm sure that there'll be many more mainstream things, but we'll be trying a lot of things and showing a range of things to, to as we kind of iterate our way to what, what's going to be next. I think that's probably the right criticism to hear early on, though, that like, you're not ambitious enough because I think I, I talked to a lot of indie hackers about this. They're like, okay, I'm one person. I have this company, uh, and they start doing like all these like really big company things. And I'm like, well, why are you doing this? Like, you don't have enough people. <laughs> you got you got to be like you know much more MVP ish. And it's because they're looking at these stories of these like they're looking at Amazon, they're looking at Google, and they're trying to copy what they see like big established companies doing. And like, you can't get there immediately. You have to sort of work your way there. And I think that's the same with pretty much everything. If you want to build a big media brand. You can't start out of the gate by just copying what the biggest media brands are doing. Like you work your way there one step at a time. And so it probably should look really unambitious at first. It should look really simple at first so you can focus on things and figure out what works. And I think that's really hard to do when you already have an established name because everybody expects you to come out of the gate amazing and huge. Well, that's what I loved about the feedback. Like so many people commented how much they love the pieces, which is exactly the feedback I wanted. And at the same time, you get comments like the one you shared you have the haters sort of like, oh my God. And I feel like they're caught up in the meta narrative than the actual pieces themselves. And so I actually don't care so much about the meta narrative because I'm focused on the pieces and the content quality overall. Like I wasn't too fussed by most of the feedback along those lines. So I love the feedback like Maddie's and others, you know, in terms of that. But that's exactly the point is that you can absolutely have big ambitions, but you do have to create like stepways on the way there. We're also actively taking pitches. And so if you have ideas for how to pitch us, you can actually go to future.com at the very bottom. There's like a section pitch us. I outlined the pitch guidelines. They were actually borrowed from my time at Wired and I built them for the podcast and expanded them for future. And um, you can, your listeners can pitch us because if they have a good idea that they can back up and they're the expert for that idea, we would love more of those pieces so how much does it coming. how much does it matter who is submitting an idea to you because i think oh, about this yeah. for the podcast as well like when, when somebody comes on there is like the quality of their thought and like the arguments they can make and the point of view they're expressing but there's also like the person themselves what sort of audience do they have how do their audience their audience and like view them what expertise and background do they have and like unfortunately we do live in a world where even if you say the most logical well-argued thing people might not take you seriously if you don't have the credentials or the background to, to sort of do that? Like, how, how do you think about that when people are pitching you to, to come on to Future and write a piece? Oh, I think about this all the time. And so, you know, we talked about earlier how um, the whole media approach, like my bias in general is for first person. This is, you know, I'm an opinion argument person. I edited people at Xerox Park, so I didn't have a lot of patience for so-called, quote, derivative experts. I have a real bias for first principles people. I also, by the way, call these people, you'll appreciate this term, Cortland, I call them the people that have bare metal insights because they're closest to the metal of the thing, like the building of the thing. So I have a very strong bias for makers and the hacker type. And I brought that to the podcast when I pivoted us from, and the media operation from reported to more first person voices. But to answer more specifically what that means, so a first person person expert doesn't only have to be the inventor of X. Like that would be insane. That would be like only the person who came up with the idea can write about the thing. So the other way I think about this is depth. Like, do they have earned expertise? And to be very, very, very clear, this is not credentials or credentialist. It could be data that they have. It could be unique observations they have because 
they've earned some secret or some insight because they're working a certain way. It could be the moat that we talked about earlier, the thing that differentiates their view that nobody else has that adds value to the conversation, especially given how crowded a particular topic might be. It could be even a derivative thing, as long as they're offering some useful framework or mindset, they don't have to have answers. And so the people that we look for, and on the podcast, for instance, like I look for the bare metal experts, it doesn't have to be the CEO or the spokesperson for the product, but it should be the person who's working on the, the metal of the thing, the closest to it. And I'll give you two examples um, from when I was at Wired that really showed me this. So one was I had the engineer, the lead engineer for Raspberry Pi, which a lot of people at the time had been playing with as hobbyists but they didn't have enough. And so when they decided to really scale it and produce way more Raspberry Pis, I had the engineer, not the spokesperson, the co-founder of Raspberry Pi, but the engineer who was responsible for scaling the product and manufacturing it, write a piece for me about the process behind the outcomes of how they got there. Like that's super interesting to me. But then I had this woman who was an ethnographer, so not the inventor, but a person who had shadowed Stephen Hawking for 10 years. And she basically talked about how he was like a collective, like a Borg collective with all these different people helping him think and interpret information because of his physical limitations. And that is an example of a commenter, someone who's not an inventor, but she like shadowed him for 10 years. Like nobody else can tell the narrative that she can. So that's kind of one way to think about it. The bias for the first person and, and what is or isn't an expert. Okay, so let's, let's do some like like how-to questions because this is all like it's it's all very easier said than done. You're bringing on you know the engineer, the engineer, as you said, is not the spokesperson. They might know a lot about how things are are made, but they're not necessarily experts in like what kind of content is going to spread and what's going to be interesting and how to share that story. Um, what's one tip that you would have for working with somebody who knows a lot but might not be the best writer? Yeah, so one of my number one tips is don't look at what they write actually ask them to answer questions for you. Or a lot of time when people pitch us, their pitch will have this fancy language to describe the thing, but their email version, when they just tell you what they're trying to do is way more clear. So I'll use more casual conversation as a way to get that information. The other is to record them talking about it, transcribe that, and then let them write up the piece from that or help them write it up using their own send them their own transcription of what they said out loud. Yes, yes. And oftentimes in brainstorm calls, when we'll call people, because I also am a believer in trying to shape things up front, because you know how you and I talked about that problem where you can get a piece and it's not good and you have to kill it at the end. An experienced content person, editor knows that you can actually prevent that by, by shaping something up front. And so one of the things we'll do is we'll do like a brainstorm call and then I'll send the transcription notes and delete out like the crap from it and let them use that to write the piece because we literally, like their words are right there. Their argument is right there. They're telling it to you. People get in their own way. That's like the number one thing when it comes to trying to write for the first time, not getting yeah. their own way. How much effort do you spend going out to find people to be part of your sort of network? So I do believe, like I've always had a kind of a 30, 30, 30 rule of thumb where you try to do 30% established voices like academics, existing experts, 30% kind of indie or emerging voices, and then 30% like ideas, like what you don't know that you don't know. And there's a lot of different ways to go about that. And I did this at Wired too. And in fact, one of the people who just today, the day we're recording this, like Zainab Tufeki announced that 
she's going back to the New York Times as an opinion columnist. When I was at Wired, like nine years ago, 10 years ago, she was a blogger at Princeton. And I was one of the people, one of the early people who put her her pieces on Wired at the time. And to be clear, she didn't actually do them for us because she had already written and she was very smart. And at the time we didn't have budget for paying people. So one of the things that I would do is reach out to people who had written pieces and ask them if we could syndicate it. And that was also a good thing because she wouldn't get the audience that she would have gotten on her Princeton blog that she would on Wired. The opposite side is, believe it or not, it's not that hard. So we have no shortage of pitches. To me, it's a quality and how do you pull it off? And that is a combination of how do you know that this person is not just a expert, but the expert. And there's a lot of different indicators of that. Like this goes back to that builder maker, bare metal kind of insight. Then the other thing that comes up is when you're focusing with the builder focus, like they can't just be reacting to something. They have to be proposing something. Oftentimes they're the person selling the very thing that they're talking about. That's probably the biggest challenge I would say. And in op-eds, I used to call this the problem solution op-ed where, oh my God, I'd get pitched this op-ed that's about this great problem and a great trend, but it just so happens that so-and-so person's product and the thing they're working on, which is why they know so much about this topic, is the solution. And honestly, readers know, they know they're being sold. And so that is actually the much, much harder part. And that's where the editing and the credibility and really making points defensible and thoughtful and not salesy really comes in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's like literally every piece on Indie Hackers is is talking to a founder who has a business, who has a product that they would like to promote and like to sell. And there's a sort of a dual purpose there where they're promoting themselves, but they're also providing something of value to the audience. Ideally, it's almost like a trade. At its best, it doesn't feel like a trade. It doesn't feel like, okay, let me do this thing that I want that doesn't help you uh, in return for this thing that you want. At best, it feels like this sort of seamless experience where as a reader, you're not even thinking about the fact that this person might you know, benefit from what they're writing. That's exactly right. And that's where the execution is everything. Well, listen, Sonal, I could talk to you about media and content for <laughs> probably like 10 hours straight and never run out of questions and topics. But to sort of end here, you know, most of the people listening to this are indie hackers. They care about media in so far as obviously they consume a lot of stuff. If they're listening to this, they listen to podcasts, but also they are trying to promote their own businesses and their own sort of efforts to get the word out about what they're doing. Um, what's one tip that you've learned sort of over the years that you think people might underrate or people not be, might not be aware of that might help them sort of get the word out about what they're doing? Think about what payoff you're giving to your reader or listener for whatever you're selling, whether it's an idea, a product, or however you convey it. One of the number one things that I've seen is people get caught up in religious debates about length or this whole thing of I don't want to dumb it down or I, I don't want to do X, Y, or Z. And it's actually less about those two things than it is about the payoff. Is the payoff proportional to how much time that person spent listening or reading? And did they get enough out of it? Because if you nail payoff, then people will keep coming back to you, kind of like a repeat sale, like SaaS. Whereas if you don't nail payoff, you've lost something. It's really hard to get them back. So I would say pay attention to payoff. Perfect. I love it because it's, it's sort of like working backwards. You know, it's very easy as a creator or a writer to just think about what you're doing. But if you can, as early as possible, put yourself in the reader's mind or the user's mind or the customer's mind to think about what they're going to get out of it, that can shape the entire process of what you're creating and lead to that great payoff. I would love it if you could share with listeners where they can go to find out more about what you're up to personally and also how they can subscribe to Future and catch the A16Z podcast and other things that you're working on. So I do want people, I hope people really check out future.com and then go to the pitch us section at the bottom of the page. You'll find the pitch guidelines as well as forms to pitch us for both podcasts and 
written content. And as I mentioned, we're hiring. So we'll also take any intros if people know of any talented people. And you don't have to necessarily be a seasoned, you know, ex-journalist or anything. In fact, some of the best talent comes from other places. And then to answer your last question about where people can follow my work personally, I'm on Twitter at SMC90 and I have some newsletters. And one of them is on world building and world builders, where I'll be calling a lot of insights around, you know, how to build worlds, which is how I think of content. And then another one is about editorial content marketing. I'm actually working on a book. I've been trying to work on a book because I get all these questions so many times. And I'm starting to share the, share the insights there in newsletter form. So people can follow all that under my name. You can find me under my Substack, And I have many Substacks under my Twitter handle at SMC90. Very cool. I'm looking forward to your book. I'm so glad to finally get to talk to you in this way. It's so fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you.